Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Hello. On today's podcast, we welcome Jay McCammon. Jay is the author of When Weeds Talk, a top 10 book on Acres USA's 2019 list. And more than a book, When Weeds Talk provides a comprehensive list of weeds and the soil conditions that enable those weeds to grow. On his mission to discover what weeds are telling us about soil conditions in the field, Jay has amassed almost 20,000 note cards cataloging research and facts used to uncover the weed-soil connection. Jay says it all fits together. Weeds, insects, and disease are all connected to the soil. And you know, Jay is a proverbial wealth of information, sharing his findings about weed conditions in association with everything from soil macro and micronutrients to porosity and drainage. From conventional to no-till to organic, there is something here for everyone in our conversation today. So welcome, Jay. Let's get started with your story and how you came to learn and gather and share all this great information. Well, when I was growing up, my parents uh, raised tomatoes, just 500 plants in the garden, and Dad did it organically. He couldn't put chicken manure on the garden because it was too close to the barn, and that was the main breeding flock for the hatchery. And uh, we moved to the dairy farm, and he uh, did the same things that had given us excellent flavor in tomatoes, and we saw it in the milk production of the cows. Well, I got out of college and was farming part-time, and I tried to use anhydrous, and after about three years, we had a We'd had a freeze in the fall, and I had a bunch of corn that didn't make, so I just let it go and sold it to a, a local farmer in July. And I started to uh, work the ground for the fall crop, and then my chisel plow slid over the top of the ground. Well, I knew how well Dad had done organic, but don't try to make a cold trick transition on land that is a mess, because it had been rented land, and uh, I had a few challenges there. I was selling a little organic fertilizer when I uh, was on the farm there. And I found myself wanting to quote something. I wanted to say something. I figured it'd mean more if I quoted someone else instead of what I say. So I started a three by five card file and with full documentation. That card file has over 19,000 cards in it right now. After I was in the Reams soils class, I decided to do the first book. And uh, of course, it was only about 20 pages, but I figured I better get something out there for somebody because I might be able to help some farmer survive. And then we went from that to the second book. And now When Weeds Talk is our third book. There's over 800 weeds in that table. There's a list of scientific names and alternate names in the back, plus about 140 pages of data. So that's how I got into the weeds. I've had fellas tell me we did this or we didn't do that. I had one client that uh, 
said if he very, very carefully managed his potash, he just about eliminated black nightshade from 400 acres of row crops. He had to leave the farm, and his brother went back to the local fertilizer company, and they had him put on a bunch of potash, and the black nightshade came back. So a woman, a woman in here in the state, was, I was at a meeting, and she said she put manganese on her muck soil and got rid of Canada thistle. I had a potato grower, so if I kept my calcium up level up, I don't have any barnyard grass. I had a client a few years ago call me in August, got a mess of red, red pigweed in my corn. Can you help me? So I pulled a soil test. His potash was over 9%. And I said, there's your problem. Well, it turns out he'd had, that was the only field he could spread manure on that winter. That's why he got his potash so high. He was in a transition to organic at that point. So he was trying to cultivate and uh, it was kind of wet. But he told me in the, in the past when he was using the herbicides, the fellow told him to put, the, uh, put a bunch of manure on this ground and plant corn, plant corn, sprayed the herbicide. It didn't work. So they gave him another batch of herbicide. This still didn't work. Well, you set the environment for that weed, it's going to grow. I can name two PhDs that will tell you that if you get your potash too high, you will not control broadleaf weeds with a herbicide. So that's kind of a, a quick shot of my background. Well, Jay, we certainly appreciate you being uh, here today as a guest on the Aggie Merge podcast. We got a lot to unpack there in just that opening. I'm familiar with, with your work, but I, I don't know if all of our listeners are, so I want to kind of backfill some things here, and, and then we can dive into those one by one, if you don't mind. And one is is that we know that there's certain conditions, both in uh, uh, soil bulk density, compaction, air-water exchange, along with nutrient status of uh, exchangeable nutrients and how the nutrients function with each other in the soil that tends to promote or suppress certain plants. Well, Mother Nature doesn't know it's a weed, right? Uh, we, we call it a weed because it's undesirable. But uh, the reason it's coming and being selected in nature is that's the conditions in which that weed is is willing to germinate and prosper, prosper and grow. So there's a, a sensing that's happening amongst seeds to know that I have the right conditions to come forward. Now, uh, back up just a little bit, that example of spreading manure, what would everybody assume? Oh, you must have had a whole bunch of pigweed seed in that manure, right? And uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. It was a matter of creating the right conditions, and the pigweed seeds were there. So... Talk to us a little bit about how that, your understanding of how the seed knows its time. Well, I can cite some work that Dr. Albrecht reported at University of Missouri. They were running pest plots with uh, Timothy for hay. Certain plots got six tons of manure a year, and certain plots got nothing. When the broom sedge took over the field, they would plow it up, replant the plant everything. The broom sedge weeds blew onto the plots that received the manure. So we knew there were seeds there, but the broom sedge never started. So early on, that was an indication of we have equal weeds, but the difference in um, fertility levels, this coming from manure here, is what changed the weed expression on the field. Right. So that was that was very early on. And uh, how does this happen? Do I, uh, you know, just driving down the road really fast or you got to spend some time in the field paying attention to what's going on? 
Well, you need to do some time in the field. And uh, to realize those cor- correlations, right? It's, it's I, I'm, you know, I'm not sharp enough that? to drive down the road and see very much. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of the beginning of it. And, and where did, where did it kind of go from there in those observations? It's just been a progression over, well, close to 40 years that uh, we've observed things. Would you say there's a little more of appreciation for it? I, I, I kind of I came across your work um, a lot with uh, Dr. Alan Williams mentions you in, in various uh, pasture project type events that I've been to. Um, and the grazers tend to have a little more uh, attention to the weeds and, and listening to the weeds, uh, what they're telling us, uh, you know, the title of your book. Uh, and, you know, knowing that, oh, we have a lower calcium status or we have a lower potassium or high potassium status based on the weeds that are coming. It seems like that's fairly uh, much more known, not well known, I'd say, but more known in the grazing community than maybe in the row crop community. Is that is that a fair assessment of that? I think so. And I think the organic growers are more up on it than the guys that depend on the jugs and all the spraying. Yeah, because uh, we have a lot more weed control options in a conventional setting than an organic yeah. setting. So you're you're looking at balancing the soil to prevent probably not only weeds, but pests too. We've seen that. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, in that organic situation, because you just don't have the the tools in the toolbox in organic to to take care of things. So right. how, how do you see people using that, um, these days? I mean, is it, uh, in an organic producer or, or grazer, um, when they, when they see those weeds, they're, they're immediately responding with an amendment or how, how do, how do people use that information that you've gathered over time? I think until they really start studying the concepts, they're going to be pretty mechanical and uh, and uh, management oriented. They're really not going to be following that close on the nutritional ratios. And when you look at those nutritional ratios, and and you mentioned uh, Dr. Albrecht, and and I look at a lot of the the weed indicators in there. There's there's one uh, two plus element that seems to be associated with a lot of them. Is that correct? Calcium is, is an indicator of a lot of weeds, low calcium levels. Yep, calcium and your, your organic matter or humus, and it can be quality more than, than quantity. So quality of the... Quality of the soil. Yeah, so aggregation, yeah. stability, infiltration, yeah. all that. One of the things that, that some people are working with, too, in, in a pasture setting is restoring native seed bank uh, mm-hmm. by introducing cattle on a you know ultra high density like a like a bison mm-hmm. herd so you know hit it really hard but only once a year or maybe maybe twice a year like a migration would have been maybe in the spring in the fall and that's it um mm-hmm. what have you seen happen in in those kind of scenarios in stimulating seeds that have been dormant for decades that's um do you see that potentially working yes Okay, why is that? Most people would think that that seed is rotten or gone or no longer. What, how does that work? Go back to Professor Beal's work at Michigan Agricultural College, Eight, 1879. He put those seeds in storage. In the last report I read, 1991, there were still some of those seeds with growth. So it's a matter of, 
you know, if you have just enough quantity there from 150 years ago, it only takes right. a small percentage of them to still be viable to come. Yeah. Okay. Other than events from mass flow, erosion, you know, displacement of soil where it would carry the seed with it. Um, right. So that's how, as we change the chemistry, you know, cation ratios or maybe, you know, phosphorus, sulfur, you referred to the micronutrients in there, uh, we're going to change that weed mix that's in our field. Um, when you look at some of the problem weeds that are out there, just as an example for folks, kochia, okay? We joke around about how kochia in the western Kansas area is Roundup Ready. What is What are, the, what are some of the driving things for kochia as an example? I would have to look at the book. <laughs> now you wrote the book, you got to look at the book. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that many, that much detail, I can't remember it all. That's fine. I looked it up a little bit earlier, but uh, yeah. that's that's okay. It's, it's your lo your low phosphorus, low calcium, mm -hmm. high potash. And, and guess what and we have? There's in probably those... some some other factors, but those are those are three quick ones. Yep. And in Western soils, we typically are low in phosphorus, high in potash. So there's a lot of calcium phosphorus tie up in those soils. Uh, same, so same type of thing people are running into with uh, uh, malba or bindweed, as an example, or rhizominous mm -hmm. weeds. Yeah. I think anything on rhizomes, we need to look at the manganese. And if you think about it, they're fairly resistant to glyphosate in killing them. So... They exist well in a manganese devoid environment. Is is my point there? All right. Would you agree with that? Is that why we, you know, some of those that have trouble with uh, killing them with glyphosate would be because of their they're able to exist better without manganese. Well, and then the glyphosate ties up the manganese. Correct. It's it goes back to the uh, the the patents. Mm -hmm. The patent glyphosate was patented first as a chelator. It's a binder, and then it was patented as a herbicide, and then it was patented as a as an antibiotic. And there's been some thought that uh, that is a factor on the honeybee because the honeybee has to have at least that one bacteria species in its digestive tract, and if the glyphosate kills it, where you where where are they going to work? There's a lot of unintended consequences, and we don't know what they all are, do we? Right. And and knowing causation and correlation are are always is always up for grabs. It seems like. Yeah. Um, but no, I just for example on on uh, field bindweed here, very low calcium, very low phosphorus, uh, very high potassium, and very high magnesium uh, drive that. So that means when you see that in your field, those are likely the conditions for field bindweed, as an example. Correct. Right. So if we were to apply uh, rock phosphate, for example, in an um, organic situation, or lime, gypsum, even synthetic gypsum, and synthetic phosphorus if we wanted to, and other ways that would mitigate pho uh, potassium down, those would be ways to help control the bindweed. Right. I see, that's simple. That's all there is to it, right? <laughs> but then you've got... On a 40-acre field, you got five acres of this, seven acres of that, and 10 acres of something else. Well, now you're making it complicated. This is, <laughs> what's this called, farming? <laughs> um, so give us more on, on the 
how those relationships work in there, Jay. How how what is going on? What, what's the what's the science behind it? The physiology behind it. Calcium is the element that moves the solar particles apart. Magnesium sticks them together. So you want a ratio. So we have flocculation sandy, versus dispersion. And your sandy soils, you probably want a little higher magnesium to hold more moisture. Yep. Well, if the soil is tight, it doesn't breathe. So it makes your oxygen and carbon dioxide ratio change. Foxtail will come in. And as that soil degenerates, the foxtail will start to phase out. And the fall panicum, fall panicum will come in. So if you're going to try to solve that problem, you try to get the foxtail to come back by what you've changed, and then it'll go back to whatever is after that. It's actually a sequence in what happens. There's a sequence of degeneration, and it's going to be a very similar sequence in reverse as you're trying to correct the problems. So I know in your in your book here, how much do you dive into that, that sequencing of the plants uh, where you're going from various species either forwards or backward in the chain? Well, another another situation comes up. Uh, velvet leaf needs methane gas in the soil to trigger germination of the weed. Methane gas can come from two sources, poorly managed uh, residue mm-hmm. or poorly managed manure. So by poorly now, ma- managed residue, what would that mean, Jay? The residue is put in the ground and there's not enough oxygen to make let it decay. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, if the soil degenerates more from that, then ethane gas is going to be the predominant gas, and it's going to be gypsum weed that'll come. So stage one in that example would be velvet leaf, and if it's even a worse condition, it would be gypsum weed is is what you're saying. So by looking at the, the various weeds that you have, it's an indication of how far from optimum you are. Right. Very, very interesting. What are what probably are the last weed that'll leave will be your lamb's quarter. Okay. And some people like lamb's quarter as a substitute for spinach. Okay. So some of the common ones in the Midwest are, uh, you know, as we move south, Palmer amaranth, uh, other, you know, pigweed species. Uh, we also have the wonderful water hemp uh, that everybody seems to enjoy. However, I don't really have that on my own farm at all. Uh, Marist, or water hemp's fairly limited, and lamb's quarter isn't much, uh, and neither is uh, pigweed. What 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 drives those broadleaf species? Dr. Reams taught your phosphorus to potash ratio is the big thing there. First, it can go back to the calcium-magnesium ratio because of the air movement in the soil, whether the soil is breathing or not. So the P to K ratio, the wider that ratio, the better or the worse for those weed expressions? Dr. Reams, on the, on the Lamont test, he wanted, well, back up, conventional agriculture will have you on a 1 to 2 phosphate to potash ratio. If you get to a 1 to 8, you're not going to control the broadleaf weeds with the herbicide. Dr. Okay. Reams wanted, for field crops mostly, a two-to-one phosphate to potash ratio. Now, that's a challenge to get because you've got to have good biology to make your phosphorus work. That's correct. And I think um, most of that's going to be um, caused by excessive potash applications driving a lot of, yeah. those weeds. Plus plus the chlorine that's in their OO60. Mm-hmm. Which is a biocide. Yep. 
Darn it. Now, Dr. Eames said, you need five pounds of chlorine for 150 bushel of corn. But if you figure it out, you put 200 pounds of potash on, you're getting a lot more than five pounds of chlorine. But more is better, I thought. <laughs> yeah, some some places. So one of the things that uh, our California farmers work with a lot is heavy amounts of uh, industry-recommended potassium um, for almond production because it's a extraordinarily high removal rate of potassium. But fortunately in California, very few are using potassium chloride or myriad of potash. Almost everybody out there is using potassium sulfate or potassium thiosulfate or those kind of things. Is that part of the weed control problems we're likely seeing there is we've got those really high elevated potassium levels in a soil that's naturally low on phosphorus. Um, some of the broadleaf weed control struggles that can be in an almond orchard. Yes. We've found cover crops seem to work well to aid with the weed control. I think part of that is just the competition aspect, you know, throwing them off a little bit. They, they have to fight for their, their space. But I also think it has a lot to do with um, the microbiome variety within there. I think so. So when you when you talk to groups like Acres and, and others, what kind of information, uh, what kind of questions do you receive? And is it all very specific to certain situations? Or how does that work when you're addressing a large group of people on, on these type of concepts? I usually start with, our, with the calcium. For one thing, Michigan State University has told the, the farmers... If you want the big alfalfa yield, 800 pounds of potash. Well, I've run to some people that did that, and they all end up with the dandelions the next year. One man said that uh, someone sold him the barrel of liquid calcium, he sprayed it on, and the dandelions went into decline. Now, if you're trying to get uh, calcium into your forage, why do you keep pouring on so much potash? Dr. Albrecht talked about some research. Sure, they did get uh, a increase in yield with that, with that potash, but they, they know, nobody explains why the protein or the nitrogen content dropped 25%. The phosphorus in that forage dropped 40%. The calcium content dropped 64%. That cow's stomach has to be a, a hay baler to get enough nutrition out of that forage when you do that. I had one man tell me he fertilized his hay with ammonium sulfate and ammonium phosphate. When he had to go back and buy hay, 40 cows would drop 150 pounds a day on production just because the difference in fertility, all the potash. So it's important to know what the what the role of potash is in it. And, and we, we um, typically are not big promoters of potash because it's an osmotic regulator. So it prevents the flow of nutrients from the canopy to the roots. Um, we sometimes forget the top and the, and the roots are connected. And <laughs> yeah. It, uh, the reason we get that wonderful abundant top growth is the carbohydrates that would have gone down to the roots in order to sequester uh, or to feed microbes in order to uh, make more phosphorus available or to have root growth, root growth and extension, which is the only way that you can acquire calcium history mm-hmm. root tip um those goodies are gone uh we've we've grown more top biomass more tons up top right now because we've you know put more carbohydrate to grow more top but we've sacrificed the roots um 
So then why does that signal then the dandelions the, the following year to come out? Is it part we've created some root disease because we didn't have enough energy going down there. We have less competition from the alfalfa. I'm sure that's part one. But but part two is that phosphorus calcium or phosphorus potassium ratio then is more conducive to a dandelion? The uh, root of that dandelion goes three feet deep to bring up the calcium that's leached out. So if you have dandelions, that's a good thing. Yeah. If you want more calcium. Yeah. But in reality, if you have weeds, it is a good thing because that's nature saying, I, I am filling in the void. Right. We just don't like that they take away from yield. <laughs> well, like I was told in one of, the, one of my classes, it seems there's money goes somewhere to promote dolomite lime, but uh, not, not many places need dolomite lime. Well, there's not a lot of margin in dolomite lime or in calcium right. lime. Right. It's, it's a boring product. Yep. Talk a little bit, too, about um, how plants are really good at uh, weather forecasting. Well, I'll go back to what I read of Marty Stewart and one of his clients. He was on the farm, and the alfalfa was 14 bricks. Of course, if you're not familiar with that, you check it with a refractometer. It's a total dissolved solids in the sap of that plant. And uh, the farmer wanted to, to cut it. Marty says, let's see if we can get it a little higher. The next morning, or the next day, he was back on the farm again. The alfalfa was at 11 bricks. What's going on here? Yeah, better put it in the silo. Marty says, no. The next morning, it was seven bricks. That afternoon, a, a big storm blew in off the lake, Lake Michigan, or Lake Erie or Lake Ontario. I've forgotten which one. The following, uh, after the storm, the... Uh, Farmer was beating on Marty's door at seven o'clock in the morning, which normally the bricks is low at, at the beginning of the day. He was already back up to 11 bricks. He harvested a few days later at 15 bricks. And speaking of bricks, if you want to put three pounds of gain per day on animals on pasture without grain, you want your bricks up to at least 15. If you got 16 bricks on your forage, in a dairy situation, it requires 60% less grain to produce 100 pounds of milk. Jay, you were connecting some dots for me when you were telling that story about the alfalfa. And, and it was the plant understood the barometer, but why was it putting its energy not in the leaves at that time? You told me a little bit about that. It's a matter of survival. That plant is determined to produce at least one seed, if, it, if at all possible. It pulls the energy back to the roots. I had two potato growers that uh, were hit by hail. And uh, I had them put uh, fish and, and a carbon material on as soon as they could get on the field. The one farmer is the only time I ever knew him to produce a 500 bag yield. The other farm, he was so impressed, he wanted to artificially do it. I told him if he wanted to do it artificially, he had to work with the barometer. Start with that low barometer and then work from there. So you've seen a pretty big uh, correlation between uh, low pressure systems and bricks levels yes huh that's news to me i appreciate that i'll have to pay attention to that this summer looking forward to that so does that also have a correlation then to pest and or disease incidence by dropping the sugar in the leaf tissue well i was checking alfalfa 
Well, I've checked it many times over the years. But when I first started doing it, alfalfa, six, eight, nine bricks. Yeah, we had alfalfa weevil. 11 or 13 bricks, no alfalfa weevil. I've grown my grown potatoes in my garden for ho- over 30 years. The first few years, I had to spray two or three times for Colorado potato beetle. I haven't sprayed for the beetle in at least 10 years, even when there's 100 acres of potatoes one mile west of me. My soil has changed. I can't, can't say I've solved everything, but that is one place. Now, I had a little problem with the beetles in uh, eggplant this last year, but those plants were under some kind of strange stress, and I don't understand that. But once we got out of the stress, the beetles were gone. So you were talking about uh, Japanese beetles there, or what, what kind of beetles? Did Colorado you... potato beetle. Oh, the potato beetle were in, uh, okay. Yeah. I have not solved the Japanese beetle yet. I have problems with them in my raspberries. Well, we'll, we'll discuss after the podcast. That'll be fun. <laughs> Kim? Jay, I'm just fascinated with how you've made these connections. And again, we talk so much about systems approaches here. And that's really, again, what you're talking about is evaluating that full system. We've talked about the condition of the soil. We've talked about what weeds are expressed based off of the conditions of the soil. And we're learning how to remedy those things based off of those conditions by by getting that right condition. But I want to be sure and draw out that you talked a lot about that you didn't have good working biology. Can you go into a little bit more depth about that? Because we really find that that's key, that we overlook the biology of the soil. Well, it's our biology that makes the nutrients available to the plants. Potash will dominate the system very easily. So that's why we've got to work with we got to work with our biology, get our phosphate and calcium and some of the traces working correctly. Until we get that biology, it's hard to, to uh, get everything to fit together. Well, and I was just doing a little work on the carbon-nitrogen ratio. And one of the things that I think that we find is, so we're incorporating cover crops, we're looking at more diversity, and it's such a delicate balance, isn't it? Because that carbon-nitrogen ratio fuels how the soil microbes eat. So they're part of that biology. Then what does that do with your nutrient release, as you were saying, and then what weeds get expressed? So we've got all these things plugging into this system that we call soil health. And so it really does require us to examine all of those areas, doesn't it? Right. So in talking with organic growers or talking with grazers, okay, they know you, they know this concept more. Our podcast goes to conventional farmers. They don't have a clue about this. And we've hit on a few things of the whys, but if you're going to tell this to somebody that just doesn't, didn't, doesn't even know this exists, doesn't even know there's these correlations, what is the mechanism behind it? What is the science behind it? We got to answer those basic questions first before they're going to, you know, believe here. We're, we're, we've kind of been talking on step five. Okay, we need to back up to step one. Can can you, for our listeners today, you know, start with that the concept of that so people understand um, where you're coming from and how these things work? Well, it it goes right back to the calcium and magnesium in the soil life. Like I said, the grass weeds. Grass weeds are there to loosen the soil. That fibrous root system is there to loosen that soil. And once that environment changes, 
they're not a problem. I have an asparagus grower that he gave me pictures of things of things he'd done, and some weeds were maybe one third of the size of what was in his neighbor's field. Some weeds totally disappeared. I actually had sandburrs disappear. I hated starting school in elementary school because sandburrs in the playground. I had sandburrs when I was transitioning to organic, and then all of a sudden they disappeared. And I thought, well, maybe I cultivated better, but I didn't cultivate the oats and disappeared that. And once I got into the research, like the asparagus had a lot of problems with sandburrs because they keep that bare all summer. The only thing that's growing is that cane and the rows are probably four and a half, five feet apart, but they keep that bare. And if you don't have live roots in the soil to keep feed the microbes, what's going to happen? You've got to have your microbes, but they've got to feed on on the uh, what comes out of the plants, out of the roots. I was at the uh, experiment station east of here where when they were doing the apple project and Mark Whalen was on that part of the uh, tour and I asked a question about the sprayed strips in the orchards because they, they keep that sprayed bare under the tree. I don't remember the question and I don't remember his answer, but he made one other statement that stuck with me. The rain cannot soak into the ground in that sprayed strip. Now, what's that doing to the uh, microbes if, if you're not getting the moisture in the microbes? While I was managing the organic orchard, there was one block that I was able to see that had not had herbicide sprayed in at least a few years. But during a dry year where that spray pattern was, some of those places, that grass was turning brown. Just exactly the spray or the spray strip was. So, if if we're going to make any changes, we got to get rid of some of the toxicity. Well, you know, Jay, when you talk about that and making changes, it reminded me you've put together some specific weeds that are suppressed by specific crops. And I'm just wondering, how do your growers or people that you talk with are they doing crop planting? That's one of the things that we really look at. All of this process really requires some planning, doesn't it? And do your growers, are they doing more planning of really looking out several years as they address some of these weed issues or what the weeds are telling them? Maybe a few are. But I would presume you think that'd be something that would benefit growers if they could plan better. What, what would that look like, do you think? Well, for one thing, hopefully they can use fewer herbicides and start to get that soil functioning at least a little bit away it should. What else do you think it'd be good for us to... Um talk about or share while we while we have our time here together today, Jay? Well, I would like to mention one thing about setting up a cultivator, row crop cultivator. Most cultivators on the market, the two shovels that are closest to the row are right across from each other. There's a tendency to hill the weed up with the crop. I have observed it, and I had one client tell me he had a John Deere cultivator, an international cultivator, he broke a shank on the John Deere cultivator. He grabbed one off the International, and it did just that. It put that one one shank as a head. It's tipping the weed out of the row so the uh, following shank on the other side can do a better job of burying the weed. And the uh, you need to be working on the weeds when they're in the white. If you wait till that weed is, good, is green, you've got chlorophyll. It's putting energy back in the roots, and that's uh, that's going to be a factor for survival of the weed. So these tine weeders that are on the market, 
rotary holes, things like that are definitely, there's a definite place for them. Early is the definite place. Right. Early and often. Yeah. <laughs> well, the one grower I had with dry beans, he was in with a fierce arrow five days after planting. Then he had a rotary hole. He had a Danish tank cultivator. He had a Lilliston rolling cultivator. He had a cultivator set with disc killers so that if he needed to do a specific job, he could have that implement on and going and not spending time adjusting bending wrenches. So how do we get rid of all these cultivation passes and weed fingers and color packs and rotary hose and all these things? I mean, so I'm, I'm a long-term no-tiller myself. We're in conventional cropping, but we are non-GMO. We're as low impact herbicides and as few as possible at lowest rate possible cover mm-hmm. crop integrating and those kind of things. But in order for us to be organic, because of our highly erodible land, we would need to be no-till. So what are some things that you can look at what you're doing in order to help people reduce or eliminate uh, chemistries to go organic no-till? There was work at University of Missouri. They planted no-till corn into red clover. They came back with a sickle bar mower and a divider over the row so that the clover did not fall on those young plants. I think the work was done probably in the 70s, maybe in the early 70s, and they had 100 bushel corn with no nitrogen expense. In my guess, they would have enough nitrogen to do a second crop of corn with tillage. I wrote to the university because I wanted a picture of that uh, divider. The answer I got back, the man who did that work has retired, and we feel the economic value of clover, red clover, is higher for other purposes. <laughs> I would love to have loved to work with that, but I never had the opportunity. I think you could design a, um, I don't think it'd be that hard to do, to design I don't a little, think so little divider and it just attaches right to the cutter bar. Uh, and, it's just a matter of lining up on the row correctly. Yeah. And you're not letting the clover get that far ahead either. Right. Now they were cutting like right before emergence is what they were doing there. Yeah. Somewhere close to emergence. Mm-hmm. Well, as luck would have it, I uh, guess what I have this year, I got a, I got a hundred acre field of clover that's going into no-till corn. So, uh, maybe, maybe we need to collaborate there. Maybe you can do something a few acres. <laughs> Any, anything else that, uh, you'd like to share with our, our listeners today while we're, while we're together? Well, it all fits together. Weeds, insects, and diseases are all connected to the soil. And over time, as you work with it, you're going to see changes, and you should be for the better if you're, you're managing right. And I think you said it best, Jay, when in your book you said that the purpose of weeds is to correct soil problems. And right. I think that, again, as you just said, really examining, we talk about uh, the two most important things in your field are your shadow and your shovel. And mm-hmm. I, from what I've heard you talking, you, you say basically that same thing, that you've got to be out there and you've got to be examining what's going on, be an observer of your fields and your soils. Right. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to visit with us today. And like I said, I've already dog-eared and uh, <laughs> highlighted and made notes, but uh, we really appreciate you taking time to share this. We think it's an important discussion to have because we've got to be observing these situations right. and things that we can resolve if we work with 
Mother Nature, mimic the biology, you know, all of those things. And I, I think there's a lot of things that a conventional grower can relearn from an organic grower. Yes. I think a lot of knowledge has been lost in two generations. Yeah. You know, when I, I talk to my dad about different cover crops or what we're doing with livestock and stuff, and he's like, oh, yeah, we used to do that as a kid. Yeah, we did that. Yeah. Oh, we did this. Yeah. yeah, we used to clover. And it's like, it's just this big void has happened in conventional agriculture. Yeah. And I think your your wisdom and the wisdom of, of others that hasn't been lost uh, needs to be reintroduced because there's there's a place in that system. Yeah. You know, it's just the conventional farmer just should have a bigger toolbox yeah. versus, um, you know, thinking of the conventional farmer only has the air wrenches and, you know, an organic farmer only has the electric wrenches or something like that. You know, it, I just think a lot gets lost in translation between the two groups here over time. Back, I think it was 1981, we had over eight inches of rain in September and I made a tool, but you, you could say it was like a tile probe. I marked it so I could tell how deep I was going, what I was hitting in the, in the soil. Took it home on that on that farm, and I went down seven and a half, eight inches, and uh, I hit a layer. I pounded on it three or four times. The probe would drop another 10 inches. I had struggled all those years on that sandy soil because that layer which was basically at the level where all the tillage had been. There was an article in Michigan Farmer shortly after that time that talked about hard pan and sand. When you work the soil, there's a tendency to find particles to saddle, and when you quit disturbing them, they will seal the soil. As I've worked with that tool over the years, and I say if you don't have money for a penetrometer with all the numbers, make one for yourself and go out and look at your soil. One thing I've observed, if it's harder pulling the rod back out than it was pushing it down, likely you have too much magnesium. And when you think about it, that tillage begets more tillage. Deeper yeah. tillage requires deeper tillage. Yeah. It's, a, it's an unending cycle. You have to uh, reach a point in time where you stop and you go to vertical tillage by plant root. Yeah. So we're not dispersing or destabilizing soil aggregates and allow the, the roots to penetrate and make those layers go away over time. So Yeah. My father had a field that he plowed for oats in the first spring he was back on the farm and he was spinning on the plow pan. He planted the oats, seeded the alfalfa and clover and whatnot, and the hay was just so so for all those years. Well, we had a little experience with a subsoiler, and Dad said, we're going to conquer that field. And the old John Deere single shank subsoiler, it would go 22 inches deep. We put 70 horsepower on that beast, and we were stalled at 18 inches. But when he seeded that to, to alfalfa again, the hay just rolled off of that, over a 1,000 bales off eight acres. Alfalfa will break some hard pans, but will not break some others. Yeah, it depends on, again, your cation mix again. How how tight is those fines creating yep. that layer? Um, yep. You know, especially if you have tightly held water cations, such as potassium, sodium, or magnesium, you'll tend to make a higher, harder soil dispersion layer in the soil. Right. So you can't solve a tillage problem with tillage. You, you know, you can't solve a uh, chemistry problem with tillage. You solve chemistry problems with chemistry. 
and it's it's interesting how we've we've kind of forgotten these things. But well, I really do appreciate your time today, Jay, and uh, okay. thank you for your your stories and your wisdom. Yeah. And there's a link to your book on the podcast and sharing that okay. with folks Good. and and read it. There's lots of excerpts in there and and references to jumpstart essentially your observations as uh, our listeners. But it's not the end all. It's not the final word. It still points you in the right direction. And then you need to keep learning from there. I'm still learning. There you I'm go. Still We're learning. all learning, right? <laughs> if I quit learning, I might as well quit living. <laughs> that's, Amen. that's very, yes. very true. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jay. Yes, thank okay, you. Okay, thank you. Well, what a great discussion with Jay. So much to unpack and learn. We hope you'll get out in your fields and see what the weeds are telling you about your soil conditions. Those observations might really allow you to connect some dots in light of our discussion. Have a great day.